board. What do you think of when you think of the book of Exodus? What comes to mind? Moses. Moses. Well, something obvious should come to mind. <laughs> Egypt. I was thinking of another E word that might come to mind. <laughs> Exodus. Think of the Exodus, yeah. Sorry, you've been saying something else. The plagues, yeah. Ten Commandments. A calf. The Red Sea. The tabernacle. Sorry? Burning bush. Burning bush, yeah. The, the Israelites are the nation of Israel. Right, good. Lots of ideas there, lots of things come to mind. I, I did that exercise myself when I was preparing this talk. Just say, well, what, when I, if I got to prepare a talk on Exodus, what things come to mind with Exodus? Have we got the... Um, can you move the slide on or something? Yeah, thank you. No, can you just move the slide on for me? Yeah. That's what, um, that's the things that I thought of. Redemption, sacrifice, tabernacle, God with us, self-revelation of God, law, covenant, mediator. You will know that I am the Lord and Sabbath and they're not in any particular order, and there's other things that you think of which are not there. But that's what, that's what the things which I just wrote down on a piece of paper when I started thinking about the book of Exodus. Exodus is a, a monumental book which, alongside Genesis, is foundational to everything that follows in the rest of the Bible. As we thought about yesterday, the whole of the Bible revolves around one person. Who? Jesus Christ. He and his kingdom, taking that idea that Paul uh, took us through yesterday, he and his kingdom, they're the centre of the Bible's big story. And central to the story of Jesus Christ is the salvation that he accomplishes for all of his people. And we've all been there in the various tracks that you've, you've gone down this morning on those themes. And the Bible centres around that great salvation event whereby Jesus redeems a people for himself. And in the Old Testament, one of the ways in which we're prepared for that salvation event is to have it pictured for us by another great salvation event. And there are many great salvation events in the, in the Old Testament. Time and time and time and time again, God saves his people. God rescues them. But one of them stands out, and one of them is referred to multiple times in the rest of the Old Testament. As you work your way through the Old Testament, the, the writers always look back to one salvation event more than any other to, to say and to see what God does for his people. And that salvation event is the Exodus, the salvation of God's people from slavery to Egypt. And that's where this book gets its title from. 
the word exodus, it's a Latin word, it means exit or departure. And so the book of Exodus begins. Some 350 years have passed since the end of Genesis where uh, Pastor James finished with us yesterday. Joseph had gone down into to, uh, Egypt and 70 people had gone with Jacob to be with his son Joseph. And in that intervening time period, 350 years from the end of Genesis through to the beginning of Exodus, the Israelites have grown in number to a great multitude. Again, James talked about that. When was that, that fulfillment of those promises to Abraham? When were they fulfilled, each of those covenant promises? And one of them was about becoming a great nation, wasn't it? Seventy people went down into Egypt. By the time Exodus opens, we have 600,000 men of fighting age, plus the Levites, plus the women, plus the children. So perhaps about two million people, gone from 70 to two million. Just by way of interest, do you know where those numbers come from? Because they're not mentioned in Exodus. 70 to the 600,000. Where do we get those numbers from in the Bible? We get one of the numbers from numbers. We get the 600,000 number from numbers. Where do we get the 70 from? No, it's in the New Testament. It's in the book of Acts. When Stephen is recounting Israel's history, he says 70 in total went down to Egypt. And then we find here, so 600,000 men of fighting age, so a nation of perhaps 2 million people. And that population explosion fulfills God's promise to multiply Abraham's descendants to make him, to make him into a great nation. And then, as we know, it's through that that all the other covenant promises are then going to be fulfilled. But one of those covenant promises to Abraham was also for the land, wasn't it? This land where you own that cave, that, that grave plot, that land is going to become your land. But as the book of Exodus opens, although they've become this great nation, they're not in the land. They're nowhere near the land. Think of James's map yesterday. They're down in Egypt. And they're in Egypt, not as free men. But they're in Egypt as slaves. Again, that's something that God had told Abraham was going to happen. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, God has said they will be enslaved in a foreign land. It wasn't part of the promise of a blessing to them. He said, this is going to happen in the midst of my blessing with all these covenant promises. There is a point going to be when they will be enslaved in a foreign land. And that's the situation that we're in as the book opens. And so, it's posing a question for us as Bible readers. And if we started reading the Bible at Genesis chapter 1 and we didn't know the rest of the Bible, we were coming to it for the very first time, and you got to the beginning of Exodus, the question we'd immediately ask was, well, what about the rest of the promises then? You've made him into a great nation. But what about the rest of the promises? What's going to come of all that God has said? that he's going to do. What's going to come of those promises, not just for the Israelites, but what's going to come of those promises to bless the whole world through the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham? How is God going to deal with the problem 
of sin that Genesis has identified for us and that he said he's going to deal with in those promises that we thought about yesterday. Those are the questions that would arise. And those are the questions which are answered in the book of Exodus. And that's what makes Exodus such an important foundational book for us. Let's get on to this. So broadly speaking, the overview of the book, it goes into two, two big sections. First section is chapters 1 to 19. And then a narrative account of God getting his people out of Egypt. So practically everything that you put on your board here relates to those first, that, or that first section, that first half of, uh, of, um, uh, of Exodus. The story of their redemption from slavery. And that's, that's the bit we know best of all because it's the bit which is exciting and it's Sunday school material, isn't it? Like James said, the, the plagues in the burning bush and the parting of the Red Sea and all of that. It's, it's very exciting stuff. But then, that's only half the book, or just under half the book. Chapters 20, then to 40, all take place at Mount Sinai. So, just to go back onto that that map slide, chapters 1 to 19, start here, and it's the journey down. So, the plagues crossing the Red Sea, down here. Or really, chapters chapters 1, 2, and 3 are down here with Moses in Horeb. But that's... The 1 to 19 bit is all of that area. But then chapters 20 to 40 all take place at Mount Sinai. They don't move from there. The whole of the book of Leviticus takes place at Mount Sinai. The book of Numbers then follows the rest of the journey. And the book of Deuteronomy all takes place at the end of the journey. So over half of Exodus is taking place down at Mount Sinai. And what do we have in those chapters? God gives the law in uh, chapters 20 to 24. So the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And then lots case law, basically. How are you going to apply these commandments in the day-to-day life of the nation? Chapters 21 through to 24. And then chapters 25 to 31 and 35 to 40. As someone mentioned, they're all about the tabernacle. And in between those sections about the tabernacle, we have the interlude, the bottom paragraph there, chapters 32 to 34. The episode of the golden calf, the breaking of the covenant, and the successful mediation of Moses on behalf of the people. So just look at the overview of that book that you have there, the the number of chapters that we've got on each. What jumps out at you is being slightly strange, perhaps, about that, bearing in mind what we think of when we think of Exodus. One third of the book, one third of the entire book, is about the tabernacle. Now, when we think of Exodus, we tend to think of plagues and the Red Sea, and we think of the burning bush and things like that, but a third of the entire book is taken up with God's instruction for the tabernacle. And this is why it was, uh, why Paul picked one of those themes, because the tabernacle is so central. Well, we had its temple, but that idea of tabernacle or temple is so central to the whole message of the Bible. Again, this is why Exodus is foundational, and it's why it spends so long 
So in chapters 25 to 31, God is speaking to Moses. Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai, and God is giving him the instructions on how to build the, the tabernacle. And then in chapters 35 to 40, we mentioned this yesterday, the materials repeated as the Israelites construct the tabernacle according to the plan, according to, to God's dictates. But God considers it to be so important that all the materials set down twice and it covers a third of this entire book. And because that's the case, that's where we're going to start as we go through the book of Exodus. We're going to actually going to start with the tabernacle and then we're going to bring in some other themes that we have in the book of Exodus and relate them to this tabernacle. So, what was uh, the tabernacle? Get that. Why not go in again? Um. <laughs> Can I have the picture of the tabernacle up? Thank you. I'll just tell you when to change the slides, okay. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the center of community life. It was the hub of the nation of Israel's existence. Why was that? It was because, as we've just been told by the group who, who did temple, uh, it was defined for us right at the start, wasn't it? That it's the dwelling place of God. That's what, what you've just told us. Fantastic. That is absolutely the tabernacle. It's the hub of the, the community life of the people because it's the dwelling place of God in their, in their midst. God didn't build the tabernacle because he needed somewhere to live. God built the tabernacle so he could be with his people, in the midst of his people. And that's an idea we're going to be thinking about sort of for, for another session as well later on, later on today. God wanted to be in their midst. They were his people. He was their God. That's another one of those themes that goes all the way through the Bible. That I will have a people for myself. They will be my people. I will be their God. It starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. And it goes all the way through. So, let's look at this picture. I'll go over this side really because there's no one sat over there hardly. What do we have in this picture of the tabernacle? So there's a courtyard which is surrounded by, um, by, by the material, the, the, the fence which has been built in it. Who's allowed in the courtyard? Does anyone know? Who was allowed in that courtyard? The priests were allowed in there. Anyone else? Everyone. Everyone. If you're an Israelite, I want to say everyone. I mean, anyone who was a member of the people of God. So anyone who was a member of that nation, they were allowed into the courtyard. What's this? The altar. That is the altar. So, what happened on the altar? Sacrifice. How often? How often? Morning and evening every day, plus any other time that any Israelite brought in an offering to be sacrificed to God, plus in the feast times, pretty much constant use throughout all the feasts. That, I mean, it would have just been a wash with blood. Oh, it is fairly gory to me as a, a Westerner who buys my food in Tesco's and doesn't have to see me. I mean, it, it was just constant flow of blood. That was the altar. The priests, the priests did not have a light job. They had a, a job which required them 
all day to be killing animals and sacrificing them, putting the blood on the altar. The altar was necessary because how could people come into the presence of God? They needed sins forgiving. They needed a sacrifice. You have that there. Anyone know what that is? No. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. This one here. So we've got the altar, and there's another piece of furniture which is there, which has detailed instructions for and how to be made. It's the wash basin. There's a wash basin for the priest to wash in. Before the priest could actually go into the tabernacle properly, in through the tent, they had to wash themselves. They had to be clean. Couldn't go into the presence of God unclean. And then, we have the tabernacle itself. Obviously, it wouldn't have looked like that. It would have been surrounded, completely enclosed area, but we've had it cut off so we can see inside. Made up of two rooms. What's, what's this bigger room called? The holy place. That's right, the holy place. Who's allowed in the holy place? The priests. The priests were allowed in the holy place. And they would go in and do their work in there. And so we've got three more pieces of furniture now. I know it's quite small there, up on the screen. There's three more pieces of furniture in the holy place. And so, just here at the back, we've got the table of the showbread. The table of the showbread. The table, it was a table overlaid with gold. And every Sabbath day, the priests had to bake 12 loaves of bread. And they would take them in and put them on the table. And they would stay there for the week. And then at the end of the week, the priests could go in and they would eat them and replace them with 12 new freshly uh, baked loaves of bread. What do you think that was all about? Bread of the presence. But what, what did it signify? I mean, was it just so they were, could improve their baking skills and make a good loaf? It was just the, sitting around a table and eating is, a, is what we do when we have fellowship together. It's what we do when we, we spend time with each other. And the priests, who were the representatives of the people, were able to go into the temple and they were able to eat in God's presence with God. Twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes. They were eating as if they're, they're representing the fellowship that God has with his people. And that's the reality of what the tabernacle is. It's God fellowshipping. With his people, God in their midst. And then opposite that, we have just here, you probably might not be able to see it so well, a lampstand. It was necessary because there were no windows in the tabernacle, but it wasn't just a functional thing. It was also something that's very representative. The lampstand was ornately made, again, out of gold, and it was carved with, uh, with almond blossom, with budding trees, it looked like a budding tree, the whole thing, sort of with six stands coming out of it, each one of them with blossoms and buds on it. And uh, it was burning the whole time it was up. The priest had to keep feeding olive oil into it to keep it burning. And it was a, it was a picture, not only did it give light, but it was saying that God is light. And that's one of the themes. Light is another theme that runs throughout the Bible. 
particularly when talking to God. Sin is darkness. Sin is away from the light. You read John's Gospel, the opening chapter of John's Gospel, talking about Jesus coming as the light, to bring light into darkness, to bring, to bring vision so you can see, so you can, can have hope, so you can have the light. But the other thing it represented by looking like a tree and with all the blossoms in the budding was life. And again, you know, John's Gospel puts those two things together, light and life, in the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 talks about Jesus coming to bring life as the light of the world. And so that, that was, that was symbolised there. God is the one who brings life and light to his people. His being in their midst, his tabernacling with them, brought them life and light. All symbolised in there. There's one more piece of furniture in the holy place, which is right in front of the curtain there. Anyone know what that was? It's called the altar of incense. The altar of incense. And in these instructions in Exodus, the priests are given a specific recipe for a particular incense that's only ever to be burnt on that altar, never to be used for anything else. And they were to go in there and they were to keep it burning. And we're told in the, in the rest of the Bible, Psalm 141, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 8, that this, the altar of incense, the incense, it's like the prayers of the people going up before God. And so that was a picture that with God in their midst, the people have free access to pray to him. And that those prayers would be heard by God. They were going into his presence. It's a symbol of their communion that they had with God. That's what prayer is, isn't it? It's communion with God. So the tabernacle showed them that they were a people that could have communion with God, that they could pray to him. And then we have our final part of the tabernacle then, so the the bit behind the curtain inside. Which bit was that? The Holy of Holies, that's right. Who was allowed in there? The high priest, whenever he wanted, once a year. One day a year, the high priest could go past the altar of incense into the Holy of Holies. What did he have to have with him when he went in there? Blood. He had to have blood. Because inside the Holy of Holies, what was there? What was inside the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant, that's right, the Ark of the Covenant. A wooden box, maybe four feet by two feet, perhaps. But on top of the wooden box, a golden, it was overlaid with gold, and then a solid gold lid on top of that box with two cherubim on it. Again, I think you referred to the cherubim, didn't you? The other thing about the cherubim is where, I think there were cherubim embroidered on the curtain, weren't there? There were cherubim embroidered on the curtain to guard the way into the Holy of Holies. So, you, know, you talked earlier about the cherubim on the, the ark, didn't you? It's sort of guarding the, the throne of God. There were cherubim outside as well, guarding the way in uh, to the Holy of Holies. The ark was there with this, this uh, cover on top of it. Do you know what was inside the ark? It was a box, four feet by two feet. The Ten Commandments were put in there first. I mean, a couple of other things were, were added in later on. Um, some of the manna. 
to remind the people of God's ongoing provision for them. And Aaron's staff is a sign of the authority of the one appointed by God to act. But in Exodus, what we learn here in the design of the tabernacle and the ark was it was where the Ten Commandments were going to be, the, the tablets of stone. The two tablets of stone, probably Ten Commandments written on both tablets. It wasn't sort of one tablet with someone and one tablet with another one, both containing all Ten Commandments, one God's side of the agreement and the other one the people's side of the agreement. <clears throat> but they're, they're both in the Ark of the Covenant because that's where God and the people meet together. Okay, so each party has a, a copy of the contract, if you like, but they were both stored in the same place. God was meeting with his people on the basis of his law. But could the people keep the law? Could the people keep No, absolutely not. They couldn't keep the law. Therefore, above the law was the lid on the ark. And what was that lid called? And I've called it a lid with, with the cherubim on, but it has, it has a name. Do you know what the name of it was? The mercy seat or the atonement cover. The mercy seat or the atonement cover. When it's talk about mercy seat, it doesn't mean seat like that. And if we talk about the seat of government, have you ever heard that phrase? This is the seat of government. That's talk about the place where government is carried out, isn't it? So in England, the houses of parliament are the seat of government. It's not a specific seat. So when it talks about mercy seat, it means the place of mercy. Here, on top of the ark, above the law, because we can't keep it, there's a place where you can find mercy. Or the other name for it, there's an atonement cover. What's atonement mean? Atonement. It's one of those, it's one of those e- easier Bible words to, to, to remember. And you actually see the word. Atonement means to be at one month, to be made at one with God. Okay? To unify, reconciled would be another word. To be made at one, to be brought back into that relationship that um, some of you were talking about earlier as you were talking about the marriage theme. To be brought back into their relationship at one month. And so this was the mercy seat or this was the atonement cover, the place where you could be made at one with God again where relationship could be restored despite the fact that you were not able to keep the law. And so one day, each year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would go in there with the blood from a sacrificed animal and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. He would sprinkle it on the atonement cover. And God would be in the midst of his people because a sacrifice for sin had been shed. The blood was shed. The price for their sin was paid. And so he was in their midst. Without that, it would have been impossible for God to be there. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so that was the way it had to be. That was why the Ark of the Testimony was so important in the tabernacle setup. It was the place where blood was sprinkled so that the Holy God 
can meet with his people. So that was the tabernacle and its furniture that makes up so many chapters of Exodus. Can we have the next one? But included within those instructions about the tabernacle, then we also have very detailed instructions about what clothes the high priest was supposed to wear. And again, this wasn't just because that was 1500 BC fashion trends in, in the Middle East. There's this, this was God had a specific purpose for this. And it was so important that there's a story somewhere else in the Old Testament of a high priest standing in the temple before God and he was dressed in rags and filthy from top to toe. And he couldn't be there. Do you know where that story is? It's a vision rather than reality. Zechariah chapter 3. That's right. He was a useless high priest because he was filthy. And this is what he needed to be like in everything that this represented. Now, we're not going to go through all the detail on this. We're just going to mention a couple of things. The high priest, he had two gemstones on his shoulders... One there, one there, and then he had 12 gemstones on the breastplate. And on the two gemstones on his shoulders, on one side he had the names of six tribes engraved. And on the other side he had the names of six tribes engraved. And they were on his shoulders. Chapter 28, verse 12 of Exodus, if you look it up. We're only going to be in Exodus today. So chapter 28, verse 12 tells us that Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. That is, the high priest was carrying out his priestly duties. He was doing so on behalf of the people. He was doing what they needed done for them. He was bearing their names on his shoulders. So he was doing the work that they needed to have done for them. He was their representative before God. So the priest bore the people on his shoulders on the Day of Atonement when he went into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. He was doing it on behalf of all of the people because he was carrying them on his shoulders. But then he also had the people on his heart, those 12 stones on the breastplate. Each one of them was engraved with the name of one of the tribes. They were all there. God had decreed all of this. And so, Aaron, as he was doing this, carrying them on their shoulders, he was doing it because he loved them. Because they were over his heart. To carry the names of people over the heart, is that, that's a show of affection in love. And sometimes we do it, don't you? You have a locket with someone's name on it or something that reminds you of them and you put it inside your clothes, don't you? So it's right next to your heart. Because that's a sign that we loved them. And Aaron, he was, to, he was to, to bear the people's sin as he went in to the holy place to offer the blood of sacrifice. And he was to do it because he loved them. Because their names were on his heart. And then the one more thing to mention about the, the, the garments is the top one. He was to wear a turban. And on that turban, there was a, a, a plate affixed to it with engraving on it. And you can see up there, engraved on it, it said, Holy to the Lord. Holy to the set apart for God. Not God's property. 
It's like um, when I sent my kids to school, first of all, you sew their name into their jumper so everyone knows it belongs to him. That's what this is. This said, this is God's property. This priest belongs to God. That he was set apart for God to do the work that God required him to do, which was to represent his people before him, to make the sacrifices that he offered. And God agreed to accept them because they were made by a priest who was set apart by God to do that job. And the high priest was counted as holy, as acceptable on behalf of the people. God didn't count the high priest as holy, then the people would be lost. And so in that vision in Zechariah 3, he stood there in all of his rags, in all of his filth, and Satan's going on, you're, you know, you're a sinner, you've got no chance. But then the Son of God comes and rebukes Satan, takes off his filthy clothes, dresses him in the garments he should have on. And then Zechariah gets so excited in his dream that he shouts out, stick the turban on his head! Because he wanted the priest to be acceptable to God is holy. Because thereby the people would be holy. That turban that Zechariah got very, very excited about. Because it was a sign that God was accepting them all. That God was the God of his people. So there are the chapters then about the, um, <coughs> about the tabernacle. As I say, they form a third of the whole book. And yet they're hardly ever the part we think about when we think of Exodus. But God wanted to be with his people. And so God enabled it to happen. But who was this God then who wanted to be with his people? question brings us to another of the great themes of the book of Exodus, something that we, we discover in the book of Exodus. As well as being a book about God tabernacling with his people, it's also a book about God himself, as is the whole of, the whole of Scripture. And every book has something to tell us about God. You know, even the book of Esther, as we said yesterday, it doesn't mention God, tells us plenty about God. But the book of Exodus is tells us some great foundational truths about God, which then keep coming up throughout the rest of the Scripture. So time again in the book, we come across phrases like this, then they will know that I am the Lord. That's a sort of a repeated phrase, particularly through the first half of the book. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Who do you think God's talking about when he says, then they will know that I am the Lord? Who's the they that he would have been talking about? Israel, so yeah, part of it is. So my people will know that I am God. Was it just his people? Who else? The Egyptians. Again, constantly. Then they will know that I'm God. And then there's another group that are referred to in Exodus. Does it to his own people? Then they will know that I'm their God. The Egyptians, and they will know that I'm God. And then he says, so all the nations will see and will know that I am God. Repeat, I don't know how many times, I, did, I should have looked it up really, I should have counted them, I don't know how many times it says words to that effect. I will show them that I am God, then they will know that I am God, then everyone will see that I am God. But it's repeated time and time again. 
God's purpose for one of God's purposes for everything that he does in this book is to display display his glory and his character to his people, to his enemies, and to all the nations. And by the end of the book, everyone was going to know who was God. Everyone was going to know that. And in the early chapters of the book, this is a challenge, it's thrown against Moses. Moses goes in to see Pharaoh, if you turn to chapter 5, verse 2, Moses goes in to see Pharaoh, uh, and he demands that God has said, let my people go. What does Pharaoh say to God? And you can look it up if you're in front of you on chapter 5, verse 2. What does Pharaoh say to God? Who is this God? Who's God that I should, that I should listen? Who's God that, that I should let your people go, that I should obey his voice? That's a dangerous question to ask, isn't it? Who's God? I mean, Pharaoh got the answer, didn't he? As the, the, the next chapter, you know, the, the chapters through that first half of the book open out, Pharaoh got a very definitive and clear answer as to exactly who God was. But God's revelation of himself in the book of Exodus isn't limited to being seen in the way he acts. You know, Pharaoh saw who God was by the things that God did. But God's revelation isn't limited to seeing God in the way that he acts. And uh, many places in the book of Exodus, God tells us about himself. God says something about himself. Now, I set you some homework. It's voluntary homework, I know. We're not going to look at all of the places where God speaks about himself in Exodus, but we are going to look at two. I said there are two great self-revelations of God in the book of Exodus, where God says something to reveal something about himself. Anyone know, did anyone discover, or did they know anyone, what those two occasions were when God revealed himself in Exodus? The burning bush, one of them where God spoke and said to to, to Moses something about himself, and then there's one other that's that's particularly foundational for the whole of the rest of the Old Testament. You need to speak up and say something loud, because I'm getting old. The tabernacle showed us God in in what it said, but something God said. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Exodus 34, Moses asked to see God's glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And God did that by speaking to him. And we'll look at both of those. So first of all then, in the burning bush, God revealed himself to Moses and said something about himself. He called Moses. He said, Moses, I've got a job for you. You're 80 years old, so you're in the prime of life. Get back to Egypt, and you're going to lead my people out. And Moses said, well, if the people say to me, who is this God? What's his name? Who's commanded you to come? What am I to say to them? And what's God's response? Chapter 3, verse 14, if you want to look it up. Who shall I say has sent me, says Moses. That's right. God says, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
And God identifies himself. I am who I am. Now, what does that, what does that tell us about God? Again, this is something we're going to come back to later on in the week when we sort of go on into the New Testament as well. So it's good to lay the foundation today. What does that tell us about God? Did I hear authority somewhere? Uh, yeah, okay, so it's a, a term of authority, yeah. Existence. I am who I am. It tells us that, it tells us so much about God. It tells us that God never had a beginning. That he just is. It tells us that God never have an end. He just is. And from all eternity past to all eternity in the future, God is. We looked at that at the start of Genesis, didn't we? In the beginning, God. God always was. God always will be. God is. Tells us that God isn't going to change. I am not what I am. I am part of what I was. It developed into this. It's going to change again, isn't it? Until the point where I've changed so much, I'm dead. God is what he is. That's what he always was. That's what he always will be without changing. God is absolute reality. There is no reality outside of him. There's nothing that sort of exists outside of him that he didn't create. There's nothing that works on him. There's nothing that, that influences God to be something that different to what he is, or there's nothing that works on God to make him what he is. Because God existed as he is, before there was anything. Now these are really hard things for us to get our head around because we live in a, we live in a world of, of cause and effect. We live in a world where things impact on different things and you know, we are what we are because of the way our parents were and because of the way we've been brought up. I am what I am because of the genetic material that my parents passed to me and I am what I am because of the influences, the social influences that have worked on me through all my experiences in life. God didn't inherit his genetics from anyone. God, didn't, God doesn't develop and change because of social situations that he's in or cultural, cultural shifts. God just is because he's God. And that's what this name shows us. I am who I am. He's utterly independent of everyone. Also tells us then that everything must be dependent on him because he was the only one that was there when there was nothing. And he was the one from whom everything else came and everything else depends. I am utterly dependent, aren't I? If God says, right, your heart's going to stop beating on the next beat, it will stop. The fact that it didn't and it beat that time was because God made it be. The fact that the breath went into my body just then was because God put it in there. I'm utterly dependent on him. If he sucked all the oxygen out of the air right now, none of us could do anything about it, could we? That's the way it is. But with God, that's not the case. Because he eternally existed without any of it previously. And it all relies on him to keep it going. That great revelation of God. I mean, it's mind-blowing to think about it. I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. 
Tell them that the one who is above all, who is independent of all, but upon whom everything else depends, is the one who's going to get you out. Go and tell them that. That's the God that I am. That is the first great self-revelation of God. As we'll see, um, in a couple of days' time, I think we're going to pick up on that I am in the New Testament and how it relates to the Lord Jesus. So you can be thinking of that over the next few days. But then the second uh, great revelation comes in chapter 34, and so turn to that. Chapter 34, Moses is interceding with God following the episode of the golden calf. As we said, he asked God to show him his glory. And then we read Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. God passes in front of Moses and declares his goodness. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And this is one of those passages that's quoted time and time and time again, in whole or in part, through the rest of the Old Testament. The psalmists refer to it, they say, you are the God of compassion, or you are the God who forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin, or you are the God... Of, of justice, who punishes the children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. It's one of these, these foundational statements that were, where God revealed himself to his people that then meant so much to the rest of the writers of Scripture. Tells us of God's authority. Tells us of God's love. And it tells us of God's justice. This is the God who is going to dwell in the midst of his people. This is the one who wants a people for himself. What a glorious and incomparable God he is. And it's, it's mind-blowing to think that he is that self-existent, completely independent God who existed for all eternity without a people. And yet he says, I want a people for myself. He, was, he, wasn't, he was unhappy for all eternity past. It wasn't as if there was something lacking in him because he didn't have a people for the whole of eternity. For the whole of eternity, he'd, he'd had himself, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, and been perfectly happy and fulfilled, and yet he wanted a people for himself. And so he chose them, and he came to dwell with them in their midst. But having said all that, as the book opens, the next, the next heading, please. These are a people who are not with God, as the book opens. They're not with God. They're not got God dwelling in their midst. They're not living in the glory of his presence. Rather, they're enslaved. They're oppressed. So what does God do to get a people for himself? He redeems them. He redeems them from their slavery. He rescues them. And that's the focus of those first 15 chapters of the book and the bit which we're far more familiar with because of the bit made up of the exciting, the exciting stories. 
God's enemies had oppressed God's people, so God comes to set them free. Pharaoh's given every chance to comply, but Pharaoh hardens his heart. But God also hardens Pharaoh's heart. We'll talk about that when we go through the book of Romans a bit later in the week, about God's sovereign working to save who he wants and to condemn those who he chooses not to save. And then God demonstrates his uniqueness, that he is God, by humiliating all of the idols of Egypt. And that's what the plagues were. They weren't random plagues. God's, Pharaoh said, who's God? So God says, well, I'll show you who's God. It's not your God of the Nile, because I'm going to change that to blood. It's not your God represented by frogs, because I'm going to make you stand all over their dead bodies and burn them on the, the rubbish heap outside the city. It's not the sun God you worship. I'm going to turn him off with the click of my fingers and cast you into darkness. And it's certainly not your son, Pharaoh, the God deity who's going to reign after you, because I'm going to snuff him out. That's the same with all ten plagues. They were all attacks on the gods, the deities of Egypt, because Pharaoh had said, who is God? And so God said, well, I'll show you who's God. It's nothing that you worship. It's me. Culminating in that great tenth plague, that horrific tenth plague, where God said, every firstborn in every house will die on the night that I pass through the country. And that included every firstborn of every Israelite would die when God passed through the country, unless blood was shed, a sacrifice was made. And so the Passover lamb was chosen. The Passover lamb was slaughtered. The blood was painted on the doorpost and painted across the lintel on the outside of the house. And God passed through the land. The God who punishes sin, who will not leave the guilty unpunished. And the firstborn in every house died unless a sacrifice had been made in their place. And then the people were led out of Egypt. And they got to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh, in his obstinacy, in his dreadful sin, decides he's going to follow. And God obliterates the whole army as they cross through the Red Sea. And again, it's a story we're familiar with, and we like, but absolutely horrific to think about. And God takes them down, down that side of the Sinai Peninsula, back to where he first met Moses. And he leads them to Mount Sinai, and he covenants himself to them. Holy God, who's redeemed the people for himself so that he can be in their midst and that he can be their God. But how are we to live in the presence of such a holy God? How are his redeemed people, his saved ones, to behave when God is in their midst? And so God gives them the law. He sets out the standards that he requires of his people. And so chapter 20 contains the first iteration of the Ten Commandments. They're repeated again to the next generation in Deuteronomy 5. And next is chapter 20. We have the perfect law of God that reflects the perfect character of God. The law by which God wants his people to live. 
So there are four commandments about our relationship to God. There are six commandments about our relationship to each other. And I haven't got time to ask you if you know them, but I hope you do. Not have any gods before me, no, not make any idols or images of God. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. But to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, honour your father and your mother. You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false testimony, and you shall not covenant. And as we said when we went through the overview, that law is then supplemented by case law, examples. As God takes Moses through, this is how it applies in different situations. Now if I was to ask you which of those Ten Commandments is most broken. Well, that would be impossible to answer because they're all broken all the time, aren't they? A slightly different question. Which of those Ten Commandments is the most ignored? I mean, you go to any nation in the land, they'll all say murder's wrong. You know, murder happens, doesn't it? And the way Jesus interprets that in the Sermon on the Mount, murder happens all the time. But everyone knows murder's wrong. Which is the most ignored of those Ten Commandments, do you think? Not to use the name of God in vain. I don't know, I think a lot of the first. I think it's a Sabbath day one. I think a lot of people just know that the rest are wrong. They still do them. But I think the Sabbath day one, a lot of people, a lot of Christians were just it's no longer relevant. Good. Yeah, the Sabbath day one. That's the book of Exodus has got so much to say about the Sabbath day. Five times the book of Exodus tells the people to keep the Sabbath day. And only one of them is in the Ten Commandments. Comes before the Ten Commandments, comes in the Ten Commandments, and it comes after the Ten Commandments. You, because you're my people... And I'm dwelling in your midst. You have to set one day apart to worship me. One day when you stop doing everything else and you exclusively give that day over to me. That's what God says five times in the book. And if someone didn't, what was the penalty? They were booted out. You are not one of my people. You're not allowed to live here. You're not allowed to identify yourself with God's people. You are not one of my people. God was living with his people and he demanded their worship in return. And he demanded they set one day aside. Now that's something that should get us thinking, shouldn't it? We can have a whole big discussion later, can't we, about Sabbath and Sunday. But think about the principle how important that was to God's people. And Exodus shows us that. And then our final heading from the book of Exodus then leads us, leads on from that really. The people were given the law. Moses comes down from the mountain with the law and he reads it all out. Chapters 20 to 24 of Exodus, he stands before them and he reads it to the whole community. What do they say? They say, yeah, we'll do it. 
Chapter 24, verse 3, all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But they weren't able to. Within a very short space of time, Moses had gone back up the mountain again. It's difficult to know, but maybe he went up and down that mountain five times. That's pretty decent for an 80-year-old. He was up there five, maybe five times, but he'd gone back up the mountain again. Just after they said, yeah, we're going to do it all. And they made a calf out of the gold they plundered from Egypt. And they said, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. We're going to worship him instead. And such disobedience led to God's anger, led to his righteous anger, led to his righteous judgment. Because a holy God, a God who will not by no means leave the guilty unpunished, as he said in Exodus 34. That holy God and a sinful people don't mix, but that's exactly what the tabernacle is, isn't it? A holy God in the midst of a sinful people. That's what God wanted, but it's impossible. And so you need a mediator. You need a go-between, someone who can act on behalf of the people, someone who can plead with them, Plead for them with God. And that's what Moses is. Aaron also represents that in his role as high priest, but in the book of Exodus, Moses is the, the, the foremost mediator within the book. And so in Exodus 33, verse 12, this is after the golden calf episode, and Moses is praying to God. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people... But you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favour in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favour in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favour in your sight. Consider too, that this nation is your people. And God said, he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses pleads with God. He says, go with us. We're sinners. We've built the golden calf. We've, We've broken the covenant. But go with us. Not because we don't deserve to be punished, but because we are your chosen people the ones who bear your names. And then, Moses pleads his role as a mediator. If I have found favour in your sight, he says, go with us. And you think, well, Moses, that's a risky business, isn't it? To say that. But how does God respond? Amazingly, we read in verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken... I will do, for you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. God listened to the mediator that he'd appointed. God was pleased with the mediator. And so the covenant was re-established with the people. He was their God. They were his people. He dwelt among them to lead them to guard them, to watch over them, because there was a mediator who could act 
and plead on their behalf, whether that be Moses or whether that be Aaron, the high priest. Finally then, this is the great salvation event of the Old Testament. And it was absolutely necessary. Because if God had not redeemed his people, then all of his covenant promises to Abraham would have come to nothing. There would be no Israel. Because Pharaoh was going to wipe them out. Every male killed. No males, no babies. End of the people. No Jesus. Nothing. So the exodus was necessary for the continuation of the covenant. But as we've said, the greatest salvation event in the Old Testament was also just a picture of the even greater salvation event that was to come in the New Testament. Everything that we've considered in the book of Exodus finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were enslaved to sin. Hopeless, helpless, but our Passover lamb was slain. His blood was shed in our place, that we might be redeemed from our slavery. And through that, God has brought his people to himself. He doesn't just dwell with us, as we've said, and that one about the temple again, he dwells in us. He dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. And his Spirit equips us to live for him. According to his law. But when we fail, we have a mediator. One with whom God is well pleased. And who has found favour in God's sight. And he pleads his merits. And he pleads his righteousness. That we might not be condemned before God. Jesus fulfills all of the types in the pictures of the book of Exodus. And the the group that was doing Exodus, one thing you didn't mention, was the transfiguration. And Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, and he stood with Moses and Elijah, and it says he talked about his Exodus. He talked about, it's the version you have will probably say talked about his departure, but the actual word it uses is he talked about his Exodus. He's the tabernacle whereby God dwells with us and in us. He's the great high priest who carries us on his shoulders and in his heart. He's the Passover lamb whose blood was shed. He's the fulfillment of the law. He is our intercessor and mediator. Exodus is about the covenant relationship of God with his people through the gospel. Okay. Are we ready for lunch, James? Yeah. So let's pray and I'll give thanks for lunch at the same time and then uh, we can go and eat. Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are, the great and the awesome God, the I Am. Lord, the great God of compassion and love and faithfulness and the great God of justice. The great God who is jealous for a people for himself. Lord, we thank you for what we have revealed to us about you and from you. Lord, we know that we can never stand before you. 
Lord, we are lost in our rebellion and sin, and yet we praise you that Jesus, our Passover lamb, that his blood was shed for us, that we might be brought into that relationship with you. And we praise you that he ever stands as our mediator to intercede for us. Lord, we praise you that through him we can be with you, and we can have you live in us, dwell within us, Lord, that we, your people, you, our God. How great is the salvation that you have lavished upon us. Lord, we thank you that we've had this, this, past, uh, this morning to think about these great things and these great themes. Lord, we pray that you would thrill our hearts with them. Thank you now for good food for our bodies. Pray that you would sustain us, give us the energy and the strength we need for the, the rest of this day. Lord, we pray that you would be honoured in our, the time we spend together eating now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.